come towards Christmas and we start a new series on the early chapter of Matthew's, the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew starts in what really is the most unattractive fashion for modern English readers. He starts with a genealogy, a long list of seemingly unpronounceable names that would turn most people off reading the rest of the book and turns anybody off who's invited to read the lesson for this day. And so there's a tendency to kind of skip that part as, well, we don't need it. It was really a mistake, that kind of material. As Bible readers, though, we have to understand the genealogies and the Bible because there are genealogies in the Bible. In my youth, I was given a Bible once that had the genealogies and all the other bits that the editor thought were unimportant in very small print down the bottom of the page. And so there are only the major sections available for me to read. Of course, being a perverted kind of sinful teenager, I immediately read all the little stuff down the bottom of the page and ignored the top, but that was not the editor's intention. His intention is, this is material, you can skip over, it doesn't matter. But God inspired the genealogies. And if we're to hear him speak, we must listen to him as he chooses to speak to us. One of the great tricks of listening is listening to what the person says the way they want to say it rather than grid and skip out everything that doesn't fit into our preconceptions. Though when we read the, and study the scriptures and we come to the genealogies, we need to remember the, the Bible's warning about the genealogies. So the warning of God is not to be fixated with arguments about genealogies. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 we're told not to devote ourselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God that is by faith. And in Titus 3 we're told to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law that are unprofitable and worthless. Yet... What is said here, we still need to see. We need to understand what is it the genealogy is teaching us. And so, unlike other Bible studies, when you come to study the Bible here, we study what's there in the Bible. And today, here is your Bible study on a genealogy. The purpose of the genealogy is usually found in the pattern of the genealogy. Here in Matthew 1, the pattern is made explicit for us, which is really helpful. This is not an exhaustive and complete list of all Jesus' ancestors, but the list of 14 generations seen three times, as you see in verse 17. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to Babylon, 14 generations from Babylon to Jesus. And in the process, it highlights five women in particular. Now, some modern genealogies and genealogical studies are really concerned about getting every absolute detail accurate. The precise date of birth, the precise date of death, the exact connections, and that's an interesting and useful thing to do, but that's not the only thing you can do with genealogies. For those of you who watch that TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? They don't tell you everybody in the genealogy, they just pick on particularly interesting people in your ancestry, scandalous, disreputable ones in particular, things that will make an interesting TV show. This is a list that follows the royal line in particular, showing that Jesus is in rightful succession to Abraham, 
and David with some disreputable women en route. The point of the genealogy is explicitly demonstrated in this pattern. So we're told in verse 1 that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what the genealogy is about. It's to show how Jesus is the Christ for he fulfills the requirement to be the son of Abraham and the son of David. But in the process of telling about Jesus' human paternity, the author specifies the importance of the Babylonian captivity. So the history we have is the history of Israel, the history to David's dynasty, the coming of the Christ, but it involves Babylon and its captivity. So in the process of speaking of the history of Jesus, we have a three-stage genealogy that includes a none-too-subtle point about the impurity of the family by including some of the family skeletons. Verse 1 opens with the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, the word we translate genealogy is the word Genesis. It's the beginning, as in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when God created them in the day in which the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Or in chapter 5 of the book of Genesis, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. The word generations is the word genesis. It's the beginnings of. And so here is the beginnings. Here is the genesis, the new beginning. Just as God created the world in the beginning, so now here is the new beginning. Just as God created mankind in the beginning, So now here is the new beginning and yet this new beginning had some antecedents to it, some antecedents in the old creation, some antecedents in the history of Israel that we have in our Old Testaments. For the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ calls him son of David, son of Abraham and shows his antecedents in this ancestry in David and Abraham as passed through Babylon. So, in Jesus' Genesis is found two covenants, the covenant of Abraham and David, and three phases of history, the history of Israel. Uh, The word covenant, remember, is just a, it's a legal formal agreement. It's a binding contract. That's what we mean by the word covenant. And there are other covenants in the Old Testament. There's the covenant that God made with Moses out at uh, Mount Sinai. That's one of the big covenants. But he's not telling you everything of the history of Israel. He's giving you a two-covenant, three-phase history of Israel. And the two covenants he's looking at are Abraham, David, and the three phases because it involves Babylon as well. And so we start off then looking at these and reminding ourselves particularly of them. Firstly, the covenant with Abraham. It's given first in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." It's a formalised and repeated several times in his lifetime. Though the essence never changes. 
God chose to give this man, Abraham, the inheritance of bringing blessings to all the families of the earth. Through you, all the world will find its blessings and its cursing. Your descendants or your offspring will be the one that rules everything ultimately, but your descendants will be as many as the stars in the heavens, as many as the sand on the seashore, as he goes to tell him on another occasion. But his offspring will inherit the earth. As the promise to Abraham starts to take shape in the lives of his descendants, the promise becomes more specific. So out of his grandson uh, that we, we know of, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, he had 12 sons. And it's not like in a modern Australian family where the promise then gets divided to equally to all 12. Each of them is given a particular historical purpose and intention, you see it in Genesis 49. And one of them is going to be the royal family, the tribe of Judah. The king will come from the tribe of Judah. And in that family, that tribe of Judah, over time, one family in particular, the family of Jesse, David, is going to be the family of the king. And that leads to the second covenant, the covenant he made with David, which is recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 to 13, for, as part of that passage. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your, own, from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the promise that was to Abraham is going to be centred particularly on one of Abraham's descendants, David. And the house of David is always going to reign over the people of God and over the world and the nations of the world as well. Now this two-covenant genealogy then provides for us the three phases of history, from Abraham to David, from David to Babylon, and from Babylon to Christ. For though there's a direct line from David to Jesus, there is also a major collapse in the royalty and the royal house of David. You find it in lots of parts of the scriptures, but one of the key ones is Psalm 89. And I ask you to turn that up now. It's page 594, 594, page 594, Psalm 89. It's a long psalm, but I'll just pick a couple of verses for us. Sing it up in verse 3, for example. Psalm 89, page 594, verse 3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Well, that's what we read in 2 Samuel 7. But God is reminded of his words, for the psalmist is worried. Worried that God has forgotten his promises. Worried, that so worried that he needs to remind God of his promises. For the psalmist is looking at the horror of the Babylonian captivity, where David's city had been ravaged, where the temple had been destroyed, and where the royal family seemed to be it's more than decimated, almost obliterated, wiped out. Look across to verse 35, verse 35. 
once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, says God, I will not lie to David, his offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And then the psalmist says, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown to the dust. You have breached all his walls and laid his strongholds ruins. And all who pass by plunder him. And he's become the scorn of his neighbours. You've exalted the right hand of his foes and you've made all his enemies rejoice. Where is David ruling over the nations? David's house has been destroyed. David's kingdom has been destroyed. David's temple, well, Solomon's temple, but it comes from the house of David, it's been destroyed. And the people are back in slavery, not in Egypt this time, but back in Babylon. So then, here are the three phases of the history of Israel. Abraham to David was an up and up. One little family of nomads, Bedouins, who turned out to be the ancestors of the royal family of David who ruled from the Nile all the way across to the Tigris-Euphrates. The Middle East was David's. But then from David, the second phase is all the way down until he hit the Babylonian captivity where they no longer own anything except their enslavement in Babylon and the royal family seems to dissipate. And then out of David from there on in, well, it was a nothing. It never rose up again to be like it was supposed to be until the beginnings, the new age with the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of And that's where you find Matthew chapter 1. He comes as the Christ, the anointed king of Israel, the one who will reverse the fortunes of the house of David, the one who brings the new beginnings, the new Genesis. And this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus. It's the new start that had its antecedents in what God promised to Abraham and David and in what had happened in the Babylonian captivity and its despicable aftermath. Yet strangely, in this incredible claim to be the new Genesis of such nobility and royal dynastic importance, we find reference to five women. Now, of course, there could be no genealogy without women. That's the way the world's been made. Without mothers, there are no fathers, and without mothers and fathers, there's no children. So, of course, we have mothers, but... In ancient genealogies, they generally didn't carry the name of the mothers and they certainly didn't do it in royal dynasties. So here in this royal genealogy, you have five mothers mentioned and they stand out not only as unusual, but they are making a very important point. Firstly, there's Tamar in verse 3. I'm back in Matthew 1 now, of course. In verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Now, this is one of the most unpleasant stories in the Old Testament. It occurs in Genesis 38. In brief, Tamar was appallingly abused by her in-laws. For Judah, 
was her father-in-law and he mistook her for a prostitute and had sex with her and fathered twins Perez and Zerah. She was more righteous than he and he came to see it but it was certainly one of the family skeletons in the history of Israel that the chief heir of Judah should have been conceived under such a decadent wickedness. The second mother that's mentioned is in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Rahab. She also is known as a prostitute, but in fact she was a prostitute, unlike Tamar. She was the one who, if you remember, protected the the spies who came in to spy out the land. She was in Jericho. And in turn, she was saved when the city of Jericho was destroyed by the Israelites and Joshua. But look what's being said here. In the family of David and in the family of the Messiah was a prostitute, a real one, not just a pretend one who was mistaken as a prostitute in the case of Tamar. There was a real prostitute in the family line and that is something of a skeleton of the closet that most families would not mentioned, especially royal families. They would censor that out of the records, but there she is. But Rahab was even more questionable than just being a prostitute. She was a Canaanite. She, was, she wasn't an Israelite at all. She was one of the enemies that God sent to destroy because of the debauched degeneracy of the Canaanite culture. The use of prostitutes in the temples for the fertility religions of the Canaanites made this a particularly despicable way of the worship of God that God sent Israel to punish and destroy. She was one of the very people that Israel was told not to intermarry. Here was the Gentile intermarriage at its worst. And yet, she was one of the grandmothers of King David. The point is being made. And then there was the other Gentile, Ruth, in verse 5. She was a Moabite, not a Canaanite. She was one of the people who was a descendant of Lot, who in his drunken and incestuous relationship with his daughter produced the Moabites. The Moabites were the people whose daughters seduced Israel into terrible idolatry and led to a great plague. They were the people who tried to conquer Israel. Ruth's commitment to her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, is one of the loveliest parts of the whole Bible. Your God will be my God, I will go where your people will be my people. It's one of the great speeches in, in Western literature, frankly. And it brings her into a very positive light as a person of great, someone to esteem. But it's still shocking within the context of Bible thinking that the purity of Israel's royal family should be so seriously compromised to find out that King David's grandmother wasn't Jewish after all, but King David's grandmother was a Moabite, goes against the whole sense of the racial purity, the selection of the chosen nation of God, that this nation, not any of the other nations, this nation, only this nation, is to be my people. And this nation mustn't marry any other nation and yet in the very royal family 
there is a Moabite grandmother of the greatest of all the kings, David. Then again, there's David's own wife. Well, she's not called that. It's the mother of Solomon. She's not named, but we know her as Bathsheba. What she's called in verse 7 is the wife of Uriah. Look how it's said. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Not by his own wife, but the wife of Uriah. Now, of course, Uriah was dead at this time and he'd taken her to be his own wife, but she's still called the wife of Uriah. For David was an adulterer and a murderer. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband, Uriah, killed. It's one of the really low points in the morality of the whole Old Testament. The great messianic king David should so fundamentally break the commandments of God. It's astonishing. It's appalling. And out of this adulterous and murderous relationship came the son to David, King Solomon who was to be the successor on David's throne. Notice that the reminder of this racial and spiritual compromise. For she was the wife of a Hittite. That is what is being said. You're reminded that she herself doesn't say she's a Hittite. Unlikely she was. But she was the wife of a Hittite. She was a deeply compromised woman, but there she is. The mother of Solomon. Finally, there is the fifth mother, Mary, in verse 16. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, so far, Matthew hasn't told us of the scandal about her. We've not been told that she was already pregnant at the time of her marriage. We've not been told that Joseph was not the father and was considering divorcing her because his betrothed had already seemingly committed adultery because she was pregnant until he was visited by the angel and told that it was not so. But even here, there is this strange turn of phrase that warns us that something is strange. For instead of saying, and Joseph was the father of Jesus, we read Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. His birth is described in the passive voice. His his maternity is affirmed. His paternity left in a legal formula, but strangely unstated. So, the Gospel of Matthew starts with God's history. It's history, it's not myth. The word myth only occurs five times in the New Testament and on every occasion it's said negatively. It's always said, we don't follow myths. None of those silly myths. We don't have anything to do with myths. Now remember, the ancient world was full of mythology and so the Bible knew what myths were about. They understood mythology and it was always anti-mythological. It's history that they're concerned about. Human history, the history of humans and humanity but it's God's history that we're concerned about, for it happened according to the plan of God. He promised Abraham that this would happen. He promised David that this would happen. And now this has happened. 
He was working out his plan all the way along in the history of Israel. He was working his purposes out for the salvation, not just of Israel, but of all mankind. He had selected the family, Abraham's family, and within that family, David's family, as the way in which the dynasty was to be established for the son of David, the son of Abraham, was to be the Christ. And when all seemed pretty well lost, Abraham's people were not bringing blessings to anybody much. They were lost in slavery in Babylon. And David's family, well, they were, they were not really ruling over anything worth having, a bunch of slaves in Babylon and they weren't even accepted there. When it looked as if the promises God had made had come to absolutely nothing... We read that God was bringing his Christ. They still trusted in the coming of the Christ. And now in Matthew 1, the new Genesis has started. For this is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Christ, whose name is Jesus. And this history is God's history, not ours in the way, the choices he makes. It's not all the beautiful, powerful people who you would expect, but the five mothers show us that they were people that you would never expect. Unions that we would never bless are the very ones that God has woven into the ancestry of Christ. It's all the time an extraordinary story. Think back to King Saul. When they saw King Saul, they said, that's the man, because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. In the history of presidential races in America, the taller man always beats the shorter man. You don't have to listen to the policies, just look at which runs taller or shorter. Some years ago, there was a man called Dukakis who was running. He obviously didn't get elected because he's not the president, never has been. Most of us have never heard of him. Well, those of us of a certain age have never heard of him. But Mr Dukakis, when he came to the TV uh, debates, insisted on standing on a box because he knew the shorter man always loses and he was clearly a short man, so he couldn't possibly win unless he got himself up on a box. Here is King Saul, the kind of man that Americans would elect as, well, president anyway. And yet, of course, Saul was not the king. Indeed, if you remember, when he was replaced by David, Samuel came to Jesse's family because he was told it was Jesse's family and he saw the eldest brother and he said, that's the one. And God says, that's not the one. And then he saw the next and the next and the next. And, the, and they all fulfilled what even the godly Samuel would think was a great king. None of them. And he said, well, is there anyone who left? And, and Jesse said, well, you've got a boy. You know, he's a redhead. He's a ranger. Uh, he's out looking after the sheep. Uh, the word used is ruddy, which I presume means that he was a ranger. And he's out there looking after the sheep. But, you know, he's of no consequence. And he came in. And God, remember, says that he chooses him because he's the man of God's own choice. That's what the phrase, a man after God's own heart, means. He was the man that God chose because God doesn't look as man looks. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. That's one of the most wonderful and most terrible verses at the same time, isn't it? Isn't it marvellous that God doesn't look on the outside but on the heart? And then I think about my heart and I think, 
the outside's pretty good, God. Just check here. I mean, you might say the outside's not that crash hot, Philip, but that's because you can't see the heart. Because, frankly, I'd prefer the outside than the heart. But that's how God looks, you see. And so in the history of this family, here are five women that don't fit in with any of the ideology of the, of the Pharisaic Jews that were alive in Matthew's time. And in the strange list of string of events, there is the virgin birth in the family of David. I mean, there was not much that could possibly disqualify you from the family of David, not this family anyway, but there was this strange birth of Jesus. For part of God's concern from the time of Abraham was with the Gentiles, not just the Jews, to bring the blessing to all the families of the world, not just to Israel. He chose this family to bless all families. And so several of the mothers were examples of what God's plan ultimately was. But the central point of the whole plan, of the genealogy and of the history, is the culmination in Christ. All that has gone before is preparation for the coming of the Christ, for the new beginning, for the new creation, for the genesis that is in Christ. The Old Testament is the Christian preparation for the coming of the New Testament. It is a Christian book, not a Jewish book, it's a Christian book, for it was all written, it all happened to prepare for the coming of the Christ. And that Christ is Jesus, born of Mary, in the time of the collapse of Israel after the Babylonian captivity, when they were looking for God to come and fulfil his promise by sending the Christ to the house of David. And here, born to Mary of the household of Joseph, in the dynasty of David of the family of Abraham, came this babe in Bethlehem. When God called man, that man Abraham, and made his promises to him, it was Jesus that God was thinking of. And when God called David and made his promises to him, it was Jesus that God was thinking of. And here in Matthew, we're going to read in the coming weeks about the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of this man, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all your planning, for all your work in history, in preparing the way and revealing your way so that when your son came, we would know who he was and what he came to do. We thank you for this terrific preparation and this great context in which we can make sense of him and his words. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us such diligence of mind that we may continue to read your word as you reveal it to us so that we might know your Son and in knowing him, know you as our Father. And we pray it in Jesus' name.